Hi again, everyone. How about we pray and uh, we'll dive into what we've just heard. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word that you've preserved. Uh, We pray now, Father, by your Holy Spirit, that you'd take this living word and cut through into our hearts, Father, that we might not just hear, but might be changed. And we ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, we're considering our uh, our, uh, path uh, that Jesus has taken on his way to Jerusalem, and we're continuing our series in Luke. Uh, Before I jump in, I want to ask you a little question. Uh, Does anyone here like puzzles? Heidi's putting up her hand. Yeah, show of hands. Yeah, very good. Um, If you're a puzzle person, uh, so when when we go on holidays at our place uh, with my mum and dad, there's always a big puzzle. My dad will find a thousand-piece puzzle, and uh, he has a big board. I know, Mandy, you've got a great board for this, don't you? Um, And he has a big board, and they tip it all out, and then that's the thing that you work on for the rest of the holiday. Everyone just, and there's a little break, you sit down and you start working on your puzzle. Um, What's the most annoying thing in the world if you're building a puzzle? Absolutely. It's having an extra piece. Thank you, Matt. That's very good. That would be very annoying. Um, it's, it's, this, it's this moment where you have one piece missing. You've basically got the whole picture there and there's one piece that's missing. And if that happens and you're of a particular kind of makeup, that'll drive you insane. Anyone resonating with that? Okay, very good. Now, the thing is, if it's a thousand-piece puzzle and you've just got one piece missing, like this one, you can kind of work out what you're missing, can't you? The, the, the picture isn't completely ruined. You could work out what's not there. But what, what happens if you've got a puzzle that's kind of this size? Right? And, uh, and one of those pieces is missing. Then you actually don't know what's going on. In fact, if you have a look, this guy could be stabbing the other guy, couldn't he? Have a look at his face. Can you... Can you anyway, you, maybe you can't see. Oh, I, oh, that's, I'm very visual. Anyway, you're not sure what's happening there. It's like... It's not that, right? But if you've got a smaller picture and you've got fewer pieces, it matters more and more if you lose one. Do do you get what I'm saying? So what we obviously want, if you've missed that piece, there's no no getting around it. You don't have a puzzle anymore. You just have to get rid of it. Uh, So we'll we'll put it back in just to help all the um, OCD people out there who are feeling concerned uh, that it wasn't complete. But there you go, there's our picture. Uh, The idea being, you have to have all the pieces to have the whole puzzle, to have the whole picture. All right. Uh, When I say idolatry, what do you think of? When I say idolatry, what do you think of? Some of you might think of uh, something that looks like that, or maybe like that, or maybe like that. I wonder this morning, though, if our challenge isn't a little bit more like this. That actually, what has happened is that you and I have the potential to have created a picture of Jesus that, in this case, uh, maybe came off a Sunday school wall when you were growing up. It's a very defined picture. In fact, maybe even when you close your eyes and pray, you have this picture in mind when you pray. For some of us, it's possible that these pictures of Jesus, which 
maybe have their helpfulness at various points and times, have come to so define Jesus in your minds that he can't be all that he is. And so what I want to look at this morning as we look at this part of um, Luke's Gospel, uh, I think Jesus is going to say some things that might not fit with your picture of Jesus. They might not fit with your picture of Jesus. They might challenge it. And so I want to ask, would your image of Jesus really say this? Would he say this? Are you with me? And in so doing, I want us to consider, have we got missing pieces in our puzzle? In the picture of Jesus that we're building, have we got a clear picture or have we got a really tightly defined picture that doesn't let him say some of the things that we might see in the Bible here this morning? So would your Jesus really say this? Uh, Have a look with me. We're in Luke and uh, chapter 12. Uh, So Luke chapter 12, and uh, I've got it from verse... 49, I think it is. So Luke chapter 12 and verse 49. Jesus says this, I have come to bring fire on the earth and how I wish it were already kindled. But I have a baptism to undergo and what constraint I am under until it is completed. Do you think that I've come to bring peace on earth? No, I tell you, but division From now on, there will be five in one family divided against each other, three against two and two against three. They'll be divided, father father against son, son against father, mother against daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother, mother mother-in-law against daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. Jesus says here, I've come to, to bring division and not peace. Now, that sounds pretty challenging, doesn't it? It's a pretty striking thing. And, and when we hear him say that, you might say, yeah, okay, okay, sure, Jesus, but what about Christmas? I mean, don't we sing at Christmas? What do we sing at Christmas? Peace on earth and goodwill to all men. So, Jesus, what is going on? Surely you're all about peace. But here's the thing. Do you know how that line finishes? Peace on earth and goodwill to men. Thanks, Russell. On whom his favour rests. See, we've actually contracted what Jesus said. Peace on earth and goodwill to all men. Brilliant. See, it's all about happy days. It actually says peace on earth and goodwill to men on whom his favour rests. So when we say, Jesus, you can't possibly have said that because I sing a Christmas carol, it may be that we're wrong. Yeah, but Jesus, what about family? I mean, mean, don't you love families? And don't you love good families? Sorry? Indeedly doodly, absolutely. So here's a picture of the Flanders, and and, and you might be thinking to yourself, hey, look, Jesus just said a whole bunch of stuff about mothers and daughter-in-laws. Maybe that's true. But, but, but But what about these other relationships? He said, I've come to bring division, that these people will be set against each other in families. Isn't Jesus about good families? 
Well, the, the first answer to that, of course, is, well, I, I hope so. Um, and, and wouldn't we love to see in our church strong godly families? Absolutely. But here's the thing. When we think about that, most of us are thinking of Christian families, aren't we? We want good Christian families. What Jesus is saying here is that acknowledging him, being part of his team, if you weren't before, might set you against your family. Does this make sense? He's not saying, following me, I hope your, I hope your whole family falls to pieces. And that, that, That's not what he's saying. And he's not saying that the model for Christian families is lots of internal fighting and bickering. That's not the case either. What he's saying is acknowledging him, saying, Jesus, you're the king of God's kingdom, may set you at odds with your family. And look, for some of you who became Christians later on in your life, you may have experienced this. Is this true? And if you haven't had it happen personally, do you know someone to whom it's happened? I certainly do. A good mate of mine uh, at high school made a profession of Jesus, uh, Asian family, And his mum and dad said, if you're doing this, you will no longer have a family. Now, that's pretty striking stuff, isn't it? And in fact, they kicked him out of the house. Now, if if you don't know that Jesus says this, if you still have shepherd Jesus with the Californian surfer locks and the lamb in his arms, and suddenly your mum and dad say, if you choose Jesus, you're out of my house... It's a complete train wreck, isn't it? You go, what's going wrong? My Jesus wouldn't put me in this sort of situation. Well, perhaps Jesus isn't exactly the same as your Sunday school picture and he warns that taking him seriously, seeking him first before family will potentially set you at odds with those that you love dearest. Now, that's sobering, isn't it? It was was for me, I... I was quite shocked when it happened because I didn't have this passage in mind. So Jesus really said, I've come to bring division and not peace. He really did. And if he did, I want you to know that it possibly isn't because he doesn't love us, but that he has a role as our judge. And so when it says there at the start in uh, in verse uh, 49, he says, Um, I've come to bring fire on the earth, Jesus is coming as a judge. But he doesn't come as judge and leave his love behind. He judges as our loving God. So we need to find a way in our picture of Jesus to hold together judgment and love. Secondly, I think this is incredibly difficult. I hope that you don't have to find this out, and many of you won't have to. But if we had to, Jesus says he wants to be before our families first. And that's challenging. And if you think he's crazy, it's not that he wants to divide your family, it's that he wants to be first. And I hope as you put him first that you'll be able to be an agent for bringing life and healing into your families. But he says, me first. Or alternatively, could your Jesus say this let's look at the next passage are we going to go to chapter 13 and we're going to look at uh, verses uh, 2 and 3 in fact I'll read from verse 1 now there's some present at that time 
who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Quick little bit of background. We don't have any history about this incident outside of the Bible. So I can't point you to some historian who says this is what happens. But what we speculated is Pilate was a pretty brutal ruler and uh, we speculate that there were some people from Galilee who were taking their sacrifices to the temple and they were killed by Pilate along with their sacrifices. Now that's a pretty horrific thing to happen, yes? And someone says to Jesus, hey Jesus, I assume the implication is you're from Galilee, you know that? You're from Galilee. Hey, Jesus, did you hear about those Galileans whose blood Pilate mixed with their sacrifices? What's he going to say? Jesus answered, verse 2 there, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. I told you Jesus was pulling no punches today, didn't I? What's the implication of the question? Someone said, hey, Jesus, have you heard of this terrible thing that happens? And Jesus says, do you think that these guys were worse sinners than anyone else? Well, what's the implicit answer? Yes, they must have been. And Jesus says, I tell you, no. No. But unless you all repent, you too will perish. It's pretty full on. In fact, it's devastating. Jesus is saying here, you need to repent or you'll perish. Uh, Anytime I'm looking for a sign of what repentance looks like, it's the U-turn sign. It's acknowledging that the way you are going is leading to death and that you need to turn around and you need to come back to God. Repent, chuck a U-E, Come back towards God. Stop running away and leave him behind. Repent or perish is what Jesus says. But, 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 but what about? I think any time we have some of these tragic things happen, in our heart of hearts, we've got two things that can happen. We can say, that's terrible. They're so innocent. Yeah? Innocent people lost their lives. What about this situation? It was in 2012 that there was a fire in the most notorious prison in, uh, in this country, whose name has just slipped my mind. Sorry? I th- it was right near Mexico, and I've lost it just off the top of my head. Anyway, it's in South America. Notorious prison, 330 prisoners died. Now, at some level, I think it's possible for us to go in our worst moments... Okay, in our worst moments. I think it's possible for us to go, good riddance. Drug dealers, whatever, they probably deserved it. So I think it's possible at times for us to look at terrible things happening to people that we think must be bad and figure that's probably just the way it... So they looked at this terrible accident that had happened and said, Jesus, didn't they deserve it? And what's Jesus' answer? Nope. They weren't any worse than anyone else. The flip side, of course, is what about the good people? Hey, don't we know lots of good people who aren't in church with us today? 
Okay, church, this is a participation moment. I'm going to guess the answer for you, but I'm just going to just give you a moment to think about it. Do you know some good people who aren't in church today? Okay, good. I do, even if you don't. Some people who are from lovely families, who work hard, who mow their lawn more than I do and all that sort of stuff. They're they're good people, right? And so you look at what Jesus says and you go, isn't that highly offensive? Isn't it highly offensive for him to say that? Well, I want us to see this morning that Jesus really did say, repent or you two all will perish. You two all will perish. What does that mean for us? Here's the first thing I think it means. None of us is good. Now, by that I don't mean none of us fail to do good things. I reckon heaps of us do lots of good things. But morally, before the God of the universe, each one of us has said, God, back off. I want to run my own life my own way. And that puts us at peril from the holy God of the universe. Smiley faces can hide sinful hearts. How do I know that? I've got one. I had to take my niceness to God and say, God, I'm sorry for being nice and totally ignoring you. None of us is good. Secondly, it tells us that repentance saves. Yeah? Unless you repent, you too will all perish. Well, what's the implication? If you repent, what? You're following along with them. You won't perish. Now, that makes this hard word actually a brilliant word because we could be all facing destruction and that would be it. Yeah, we could live in a world like that, couldn't we? If you don't repent, you'll all perish. Well, how about if I just take out the repentance part and say you'll all perish? That really is bad news, isn't it? But the good news that you and I have is it's not just a message of you'll all perish, but if we repent, we can be saved. I reckon that's worth getting up for on Sunday morning. Repentance, turning around, saves. All right, third one. Could your Jesus, and I love this one particularly, I really did have a poster like this in my Sunday school class at some point. Anyone else? Okay, very good. Would your Jesus say this? Uh, Have a look with me. Uh, We're in chapter 13 and uh, and verse 24. Someone asked Jesus in verse 23, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? So you might have heard Jesus this morning and you go, wow, Jesus, Now I'm putting all these crazy pieces of the puzzle together. I'm wondering, does anybody get into heaven? And fortunately, someone asked Jesus this exact question in verse 23. Someone asked him, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? He said to them, verse 24, Make every effort to enter through the narrow door. Because I tell you, because many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able to. Once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, you will stand outside knocking and pleading, Sir, open the door for us. But he will answer, I don't know you or where you come from. Then they will say, We ate and drank with you. You taught in our streets. But he will reply, I don't know you or where you come from me, or where you come from. Away from me, 
all you evildoers. I'll keep reading. Then there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves thrown out. People will come from east and west, north and south, and will take their places at the feast in the kingdom of God. Indeed, there are those who are last who will be first and those who are first who will be last. Wow. What's Jesus saying? I think Jesus is saying that the kingdom will be filled up with outsiders, not insiders. The kingdom of God will be filled up with outsiders, not insiders. Who was he speaking to when he said this? He was where? He was in Israel. And the people standing around him were Jews. And what he's saying is, hey guys, follow me. Come follow me. Join me on my journey to Jerusalem. And the people were saying, oh, I'm not really sure we want to do that. Not really sure we want to do that. And Jesus says, well, make every effort to enter because one day that door will be closed. One day that door will be closed. The kingdom, in fact, will be for people who are outsiders. But, but we might say, hey, God, but what about Israel? I mean, didn't you go to all that trouble? Was anyone here for our Exodus series? Didn't you go to all that trouble saving them out of Egypt and bringing them to the promised land? Didn't you give them great kings? Didn't you give them the... How can you say the kingdom of God isn't for these people? What about Israel? And Jesus is saying, actually what I'm looking for is the people who get the message that this has been about from the start. Not about whether your mum and dad are descended from Abraham but whether you are someone who fears the living God. And some people say, well, what about proximity? And I'll explain that. Did you see what they said? Uh, Hey, Jesus, you should let us in because you ate and drank in our towns. Uh, This is a mate of mine. His name's Ty. I love Ty. I went to to, uh, to high school with him. Uh, He's my best mate. And uh, around his neck, uh, he has a paddle pop stick. And it's kind of, that's just one of these things that he did. Paddle pop stick. He actually made it just so I could use this illustration. It was very good. He used to have it in high school. But uh, he said that through to me about 11 o'clock last night. He said, I made it for you and I've taken a photo. Anyway, uh, so what, in high school, he used to have a paddle pop stick around his neck. And on it, it used to say, I know the queen. Look at Ty. Do you reckon he knows the queen? Well, he, he say, he say, I know the queen. So I can tell you where she lives. I can tell you the name of each of her children. I can tell you what she wore last week. I can tell you where her kids are going on holidays. I know the Queen. Now at that point, most people will interrupt and say, Ty, you don't know the Queen. You know lots of stuff about the Queen, but you don't know the Queen. If you turned up at the Queen's doorstep, what would she say? She's not going to say, hi Ty, come in and have a cup of tea. You just know stuff about her. And he'd say, isn't that interesting? I think there are lots of people who would say the same about God. They know lots about him, but they are unknown by him. When they turn up on God's front doorstep on the final day and say, hey God, I know lots about you. He'll say, it says here, depart from me, I never knew you. It's not just knowing about God, it's being known by God that is the vital thing. Jesus really did say the kingdom was for outsiders and not for insiders. 
The important thing, he said, was make every effort to enter through the narrow door. Do it now. And in fact, Matthew has pointed out he's going to say something next week. And he's going to ask people next week to say, today is a great day to get right with God. On Easter, Friday and Sunday, we're going to say, today is a great day to to get to know God. Jesus is saying, you need to enter now. Today is a great time to get saved. Secondly, he says, it's about what you... (laughs) No, not near. I've probably said this not in quite the right way I want to say it. But anyway, the point is, does God know you or are you just hanging out somewhere near him? See, I think the people are saying, hey, Jesus, I should be let in because I was in the same street where you were teaching. Now, I was buying an avocado up the other end of the street, but I was in the same suburb. Isn't that good enough? And some of us might say, hey, Jesus, I've been sitting in a church where you've been taught about for the last 20 years of my life. Isn't that going to be good enough? It's not about how near you are. It's about whether God himself knows you and whether you know him. And then there's this odd bit. Jesus says the last will be first. What does he mean? Well, put yourself in Israel. I'll draw you a map here. Uh, That's the coast there. That's water over here. And this is Israel here. Jesus says at the end, he says, many will come from the east, that's the desert, from the west, that's the ocean, from the south, that's the Arabs and the Africans, and from the north, that's kind of the Turkish, Syrians, all those guys. He said, many will come from those directions and take their place in the kingdom of God. What does that mean? Israel, you won't be the only people God saves. God's actually going to draw people from all over the world to come and be his people. Do you know why that's really exciting? Because you and I are pretty south of Jerusalem. Yeah? Or east or west or whichever way you want to travel. We're a long way away from home, yeah? We're not God's people. Most of us here are not descended from Abraham, is that right? And yet, wonderfully, in God's plan, you and I can be included because the kingdom is for outsiders. So why, why did Jesus say all these things? I think, actually, he was trying to mess with people's heads. Do you remember uh, last, uh, a couple of weeks ago, I said that the kingdom of God, for them, was about a king coming to rule who's going to judge the nations and restore the promised land. That's the beautiful green grass there, right? Last week, Matthew spoke to us, and he said, this kingdom of God is not about straddling. You can't be in the world and in God's kingdom. You have to make a choice to be in. And in doing that, Matthew is encouraging us, I think very strongly, that the kingdom of God will challenge what we think. Jesus was challenging the people of his time. You can't just keep going in the same way. You have to make a decision to be part of my kingdom. Then someone says, what is the kingdom of God like? In fact, Jesus says it himself. Have a look at verses 18 to 21. Jesus says it himself. When people ask, what is the kingdom of God like? What shall I compare it to? It is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his garden. It grew and became a tree, and the birds perched in its branches. And again he asked, what shall I compare the kingdom of God to? It's like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour until it worked all the way through the dough. Does anyone know how much 60 pounds is? 27 kilos, is that right, Matthew? 
It says that in the footnotes. Fantastic, brilliant. Hey, it's good to have your Bible open, isn't it? So how big is yeast? If you haven't met it recently, it's little. It's tiny. How big is a mustard seed? What's the idea? Will birds perch on a mustard seed? No. But it'll grow and become a tree that birds can perch in. How big is a 27 kilogram pile of dough? I don't know. It's got to be size of several small children, doesn't it? I mean, it's, it's big. And he says, take this little bit of yeast and let it work through the whole dough. Now you're getting a picture of the kingdom of God. It's not about a national uprising for Israel. It's not about kings and palaces. That's not what it's about. In fact, I think Jesus says the kingdom is like this. The kingdom is tiny now, but it's about to grow. The kingdom is tiny now, but it's about to grow. Secondly, I think he tells him all this stuff because in the kingdom, the time for decisions is now at hand. Make a decision for Jesus now. Because one day the door will be closed. Because one day you won't be able to repent. Make a decision now. Thirdly, I think he says, the kingdom is not at all what you're expecting. It's upside down. Yeah? The last will be first. The outsiders will be insiders. The least will be lifted up. The king will die. The kingdom is not what you're expecting. And that causes Jesus to say these hard things to his disciples. See if you can reconcile the picture above and the statement underneath. Look at the picture of Jesus there. And then read what he says in verse 27 of chapter 14. Whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. My Jesus never said that. Do you have the real Jesus? Do you have the real Jesus, the one who is at the Father's right hand now, who will return to judge? Do you have the real Jesus who became a king by dying on the cross? Do you have the real Jesus or have you created an idol shaped like him but with pieces missing? Let's pray that we are people who read God's word who find in it the Jesus who offers both to return as judge, but wonderfully to be the saviour to all who repent. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that you forgive me and you forgive us where we've created a picture of your son that's short of who he is. Father, I pray that you would enlarge our hearts that you would open our eyes to see Jesus' passion for his kingdom. A kingdom that sees a loving Jesus call us to repent that we might not perish. That sees a loving Jesus call us to take up our cross and follow him. That sees a loving Jesus call us to prefer him first before everything, including even our families. Have mercy, Jesus. Help us to trust you today and to follow you as your disciples. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.